God Creates Dinosaurs. We've got the Sad Boys Book Club here. God Kills Dinosaurs. It's a Unix system. I know this. God Creates Man. Dusty and Daniel were so preoccupied with whether or not they could. Man Creates Podcasts. I'm simply saying that, but life uh, finds a way. They didn't stop to think of they should. God Kills Man. Welcome to the Sad Boys Book Club. My name's Dusty. And I'm Daniel. And welcome to Jurassic Park. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, pretty excited about this one. We are like just like a little bit late, but we we just had we just passed the 30th anniversary of uh the movie Jurassic Park coming out in theaters. And um I figure by the time that we we have this recording and have this have this out Thirty year, thirty years ago, it was still in theaters because I mean, come on, it was it was like, it was a a, a film phenomenon, the likes that had been prob- not seen since probably uh, the original Star Wars before, uh, in in nineteen seventy seven. Yeah, it was the as as far as I'm aware, it was the highest grossing film of all time until Titanic. Wow, that is. Uh, that is that is quite an accomplishment. Uh, how much? Yep, do you a whopping know how... five years. Well, I mean, I mean, in term in terms of time, no. But like, you know, but you know what I mean. Like, like Titanic was to to uh, to make a mostly intended pun was such a Titanic success at the box office that you know, to the the only succeeded by that is is a uh, quite a quite a. An accomplishment. Um, yeah, which I mean, I I don't get it personally. It's only one of the greatest romance stories ever told. I mean, you know, how's a movie that stars talent such as Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, and my man Billy Zane gross over two billion dollars? I just I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Oh, and who? How, how could I forget the greatest of all men, Bill Paxton? May he rest in peace. Directed by uh, the great, the greatest director, James Cameron. Who I cannot name a single other movie he's done. Yeah, that's true. No, he's he's a he's a total non-factor. Definitely wasn't in the news uh, this last week. No, definitely a one-hit wonder. But uh, does I'm he just... even does he even know anything about water? You know. Some I feel would like say there's... he might know the way of water, but th- that has not uh, been confirmed. You, you just you just beat me to it. I was gonna say there there is a way of water that, and I don't think he is aware of it. Uh, sorry, I stepped on your joke there. Yeah, yeah, you did. How dare you? But this oh is not gosh. the James Cameron podcast. Oh, this hold is on, the Sad Boys I, one book last book. James Cameron fact: Titanic made two point two five seven billion in the box office. That is insane. I thought it was going to be closer to like 1.5, but that that Dude. is that is crazy. Where have you been for the last 25 years? Well, I I, I don't know. I don't usually. I'm not like. I'm I'm like an. Uh, I enjoy the the art of filmmaking more than the commerce. I'm not one of those box office uh, maven guys. But good grief, that is that is crazy. Um, yeah. But yeah, J- Jurassic Park made only with in the the most palpable air quotes of all time uh 1.046 billion which in 1993 dollars is probably like like what 
that, that is that probably almost 1.5 1.75 billion now i don't know maybe 1.1 1. 1. this is not an economics podcast this is a literature podcast though and we are talking about uh the 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 book that started it all uh by might written by michael crichton or as his friends call him mikey Kreitz. yep and this is for the first time in sad boys book club history as as long and vaunted as it is uh this is the first time we're covering a book that you and i have both already i'll say consumed because we, say we both listened to the audiobook of of this years years past yeah that was that was back in the day um when you could give you could gift a title i was the, the one that dusty um gifted to me after he got can it can you not anymore I don't think you can anymore. I don't know. I oh, that's nuts. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't use Audible quite as much as I used to, but I still use it here and there. Um, but they, I, I, and the one I gave you was, um, let's see, it was the Disaster Artist by Greg Sestero. Correct. I love that book too. I wouldn't mind doing that sometime, but you know, that that remains to be seen. But to get back to our our, our topic of discussion today, we are. Where I'm very excited about this book. Um, this is one that I think I don't know. It's there's there's a lot of things you could say about this book. I I I think most people pretty comfortably they they, they favor um, the film adaptation, and you know that is a 100% uh, valid perspective to have. I mean, the the uh, Spielberg film. Um, is is a pretty unimpeachable um, popcorn classic, uh, but there's a lot of aspects of this uh, of the novel, not the novelization, the original novel, that um, I, I quite enjoy. Um, there are things that I, I like a little more. Like I, I, I think, not incorrectly, Spielberg kind of centers the story more around the children which you know is fair it's i think he they it's it kind of it really worked for his purposes and for the purposes of uh children in the 90s and early aughts um but i i i like i've always been and i think this is something i've talked about on this uh story even when i was a kid i always wanted the stories to be about adults more so that is that is one aspect that I like a little bit more that it, it, it centers the perspective of of uh, the the principal figures like of Hammond and and uh, and Alan Grant and Sattler and, and, and those those people I, I I tend to prefer that although they there's still a healthy um, healthy amount of the the kids in it yeah I'll, I'll put it this way um Jurassic Park is not my favorite Spielberg film. I, I think my favorite Spielberg film is still probably Raiders of the Lost Ark. But Jurassic Park is definitely in, like, my top three Spielberg films. Um, I, I'd probably throw it... I'd probably have it battle out between Last Crusade. I'm, a, I'm an absolute nut for original Indiana Jones. Um, but Jurassic Park is one of my favorite movies. It was one of my favorite movies as a kid. I love it to death. I could still go back and watch it to this day. It's 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 a phenomenal movie, incredibly directed, incredibly casted. Um, and that there there can't be enough said about John Williams' score for the film. 
it's just it's incredible it's one of his best and that's that's saying something because john williams only creates great music the man literally cannot miss it is it is impossible for him to miss only bangers yeah so i cannot say enough good things about the film because it is truly an incredible film both like from an entertainment value and from a, a technical marvel standpoint with the animatronics with the um the dinosaurs and even the cg for the dinosaurs for its time um the book makes the movie look like a shitty children's film in my opinion wow strong words i love the book this is also I, i i this this might be a very um exaggerated thing for me of all people to say given the a lot of the things i've said in the past on this on this channel but on, on but um this is one of my favorite books i love it to death it's it's so good it i feel like it has every single um high point that the movie had clearly because you know the movie is an adaptation of the book and so much more and we will talk about i i i will i will refrain from speaking about my favorite parts because we haven't gotten there yet so i will i will get more into those bits when we get to it in the book later on down the line but there are so many pieces to this book that are either just as good as the movie, which is a credit to the movie, or even better than the movie, which is not a discredit to the movie. So yeah, I love this book so much more than the movie, and I love the movie to death. So that that is, I feel like, I can't give this book any higher praise than saying I like this book more than the movie. Yeah, yeah, I yeah I I quite enjoy it too. Um, I was telling you a little bit in the uh, in our text conversation, uh, getting ready for the show today, um, that this has been some of like the most like engaged I've been in an intro portion of any book. Not that we've ever read any books yet that I, I I've been like yeah I didn't really like that, but you know the, this there there have been ones that have been that have grabbed me more from the start than others. And uh, definitely, I think this is probably the one that grabs me the most because there's just something, you know, Michael Crichton. I don't know that he's like from a literary standpoint, maybe not necessarily like an all timer, but in terms of writing a very good and engrossing story, uh, the man's really up there in terms of 20th century uh, American authors. Yeah, I need to meet. I need. I need to read more of his books because I've only. I'm only done Jurassic Park. I'd like to to read The Lost World eventually, which I got the... I would highly recommend if you don't own Jurassic Park and you want to get a copy for yourself, a physical copy. It's a little on the pricier side. It's like it's like 40 bucks, but I, I highly recommend the Barnes & Noble edition. It is a gorgeous... It might be fake leather. Maybe it's real leather. I don't know. It's probably fake because it's only $40 and not $200. Um... It's like a, a quasi-pseudo leather-bound, and it's got the, the T-Rex uh, skeleton on the cover, and there's like a lot of red on it. There's like pterodactyls on the back. And it, it, it's a combination of Jurassic Park and The Lost World. So it's both really? books in one. Yes. Oh, and I love it. It's really gorgeous. Cool. Yeah, the, uh, the pages are stained silver, which I am such a sucker for stained pages. I think I said as much in, the, in, in our Leviathan Wakes first episode because our leviathan wakes copy is stained pink mm-hmm. with its pages I'm, I'm i love it. it it's my favorite thing with a collector's edition of a book 
And the thing that really pushed me over the edge with this, I was just, um, my, my wife, my beautiful, amazing wife, uh, got it for me for Father's Day this year. And I, I'd been talking about it for like a month because I, I found it at Barnes & Noble. And I was like, ah, I can't justify this right now. But I, I, I really regretted not picking it up. And I was just, for like the last couple of months, I'm like, man, I want to go to go back to Barnes & Noble and get, get that Jurassic Park because I want to read the book again. And uh, that was my Father's Day gift. So that was amazing. And it's, it's, it's saran wrapped uh, or plastic wrapped, whatever. So I didn't, I wasn't able to like crack it open and skim through it in Barnes & Noble when I first saw it. But the best part about it, when I opened it up for the first time, on the inside cover on both sides is a map of Isla Nublar. Oh. And I'm such a sucker for maps. I, I, my, one of my favorite genres is fantasy. Of course I'm a sucker for maps. That's like kind of, <laughs> that's, that's part of the territory for being a crazy fantasy fan. I love maps. And, oh, there's a map of Isla Nublar. And it's just, it just, it, it put me over the edge. I'm like, oh my god, this is the greatest thing ever. So, highly recommend if you want to get Jurassic Park and Lost World. There's cheaper ways to do it, but if you want a copy with a little more pizzazz, a little more flair to it, it's just really pretty, and it's fun to look at. I would recommend the Barnes & Noble edition if you can. The Sad Boys Book Club is not sponsored by Barnes & Noble. I just really liked this version of the book, and I wanted to talk about it for a minute. Or five. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, I you sent he sent me some of the pictures and uh, I if, if this if you have any interest in this book or if it's one of the books that you've already read maybe you have another version I don't know if you if you really like really love this book this I would I would probably recommend picking that up as well. But uh, to go ahead and get this kicked off here um, with the intro section, we have this little uh, passage where it's not necessarily any of uh not too many of like the major players in the story to come uh make an appearance here but rather this section though um i would say it, it exists as like this sort of thesis of what uh what is to come in the story it's we you see kind of um michael Crichton's view of science um I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, I thought it was, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe naive is a little too strong a word, but it was it does represent a very uh, glowing view of the past where there where scientists exhibited a lot of um, restraint and almost had a certain monastic quality about them as being like these. Um, they, they, they found the, the profit motive to be repellent and were rather almost like a, um, yeah, like, like, like I was saying, kind of like a monastic class of people that, that just were doing things out of like pure altruism um, in, in terms of their science. I mean, would that yeah, that were... It's about holy... academia, not money. Yeah. And I mean, that is a good thing. I'm not going to, I'm not saying that it's wrong wrong i'm just saying that i am not fully uh i don't know it is difficult for me to to think that that uh humanity is you know or not has always been was, was like entirely pure for for its history and then the genetic science came and just totally upended and and ruined science as a discipline but 
I don't know. I mean, I wasn't around for it, and I don't really know much about the history of science, but I, I did find that kind of... Um, uh, opt- I'll put it this way. It was very a very optimistic view of science and scientists. Um, yeah. But I think there is... There may, be, there may be a certain germ of truth there, because if you talk... The, the era that, that they're talking about here in, the, like, the 70s, right? It was, like, this... Um, which is when, in, in culture... There was a, the broader um, sort of turn towards the neoliberal uh, ideology, uh, where wherein all concerns are sort of subordinated to the whims of the market. Uh, so, so what what uh, what what uh, Michael Crichton here uh, posits as the, uh, the the major difference in the scientists of yore and the scientists of uh, we'll we'll just call it the neoliberal era is that um, scientists, as in the past, were the, these, uh, like, almost monks, as I said, and but now they are, like, no longer disinterested parties. They they have, like, like they're shareholders of, of the company. They sit on the, the boards of the company. So basically, the, it go, it's, we've moved from a, a, a pursuit of truth to a, to a, a, a pursuit of profit, wherein... The profit motive is now motivating their reasoning um, in in terms of their research. And uh, another thing that he also talks a little bit about is uh, that there's not really any sort of major oversight, at least at the time of writing, although probably now, that there is not a lot of, like, uh, that I'm aware of, like, regulation or oversight on um, in terms of, like, uh, the the biological engineering field, so that that is kind of an interesting thing, and it kind of uh, I don't know, like like I said, it, it kind of serves as like a thesis to to sort of uh, preface kind of the the moral, because I I don't want to say this is like a a more like a a strict moral morality tale kind of thing, because there's a lot of thrills, chills, and spills and lots of fun and stuff in there it's not like too didactic but there is definitely a point that he's making there yeah and i um i have something i want to get to in a minute uh but you made me kind of have a thought just now that i want to say while it's on my on at the front of my mind but um i i feel like there is maybe a um I don't know if, if it's subtle or not, but I feel like there is a little hint of um, in, uh, pro-environmentalism in this book too. I, I think Th- that's there's fair a lot to say. of yeah. There's a lot of there's early on there's bits where it's talking about. I think mostly when it's following uh, Doctor Gutierrez uh, talking about the, uh, the all the different species uh, on Costa Rica and how all of this deforestation that's been going on has. It's been, um, it's uprooted all of these animals, all of these ecosystems, and they've had to move into what what is left, and it's allowed, like, the only silver lining to it is that it's allowed these scientists to discover these new species, which is something that kind of throws a little bit of, uh, it kind of muddies the water a little bit when we get to the, the, the pro-compsignathid uh, in, the, in the early bit of the book. But, uh, yeah, and as they're flying to Isla Nublar, there's uh, talk about the... Um, Hammond has says something about the deforestation of Costa Rica, and I, I kind of picked up a little bit of a 
of a kind of negative connotation to what he to how he was saying it. Maybe that's me reading too much into it. But I've kind of picked up a little bit of an envir a pro environmentalist uh, take on this book. Like I said, I don't know if it's subtle or not. I don't know if I'm just like I'm staring at a big bright sign flashing at me and being like, hmm, I think there's something there. No, I think uh, I I think there's there's definitely something there, and I think that's something that. Uh... In, in someone's analysis of this story uh, needs to factor into it. So I, I'm glad uh, that you, you brought it in off the, off the top there. Yeah, but what I was thinking about earlier is um, when you were talking about how it seemed like there was that, that turning point um, in, in bioengineering and bioscience that uh, made it to where it was a lot more of a uh, profit-driven um profession instead of a science-driven one and i feel like that's something that he brings up again and again uh as each main character is introduced like with grant and ellie we have uh what is essentially a look at the old guard being faced with the new tech with the uh the, what they call it the thumper the thing that basically gives them a a sonar x-ray of uh the ground around them so that they could see the fossils without having to physically get down and dig and grant isn't necessarily directly opposed to it but he's just kind of like a, uh well these things are supposed to work as well as they do but they don't on the field so you know i just like to just get my hands dirty because it's reliable so mm -hmm. we have grant who is like someone that's not necessarily resisting that change but he's on the other end of that change similar to the to that and then we also have with ian malcolm who he is part of that that similar kind of change in the field of mathematics with the introduction of chaos theory and as Crichton puts it uh, people like Malcolm they see themselves as rock stars in the mathematician field much to the scorn of the old guard of mathematicians because they like to deal with non-linear equations and the chaos of the world that can't be directly quantified so I, I feel like that introduction the InGen incident which very much is, it does feel like a, I don't want to put it quite like this because this is a book series that came much later, but almost kind of not too dissimilar from like a Lemony Snicket intro where he'll be like, this book is really sad and the tale of the Baudelaire children or the Baudelaire orphans is one fraught with peril and you should not read this book because it's very sad and it will make you sad and it is a terrible tale. Like it almost feels kind of, similar to that in the sense that the engine incident mm -hmm. is talking first it spends a lot of time talking about what you were saying with like the scientists and all that which i feel like if somebody isn't locked into this book because of its premise alone they could have a hard time getting through that and you haven't even technically started the book yet at this point so um if anybody is reading the engine incident introduction and is thinking man this does not resonate with me. This is boring. Um, the book is nothing like that. Please keep reading. It is it is purely an introduction that's supposed to establish the scientific equivalent of the of like how the times were. It has nothing. It has it. It gives you a general premise of like the aftermath of the book because it basically tells you that shit went bad, but doesn't go into specifics. But it, it is not the book is not like that it's just it's just a essentially a final report of the book at the beginning of the book which is fine i think it's kind of funny how that how, how that's done but it, it does fit i think it's good i actually enjoy it though but 
then I've I've always been one of the people that actually enjoyed the political parts of the the Star Wars prequel trilogy. So I yeah, may not too. be the best judge of, of that. I like the Phantom Menace for more than Duel of the Fates. Uh, see, uh, but anyway, yeah, like like Dusty was saying, it kind of goes on to kind of talk about the story of a certain Palo Alto biotech firm, which if you know anything about startup culture and Silicon Valley, you'll know that's a breeding ground of evil. Um, the company is known as InGen, uh, as Dusty mentioned before. And it, it, that's kind of the, uh, the, the key to the plot. Uh, they, they, like Dusty was saying, is they, they, it basically just says that there was an incident, that people died, and that the, the company had to file Chapter 11 bankruptcy in uh, San Francisco uh, bank, uh, court. And that, oh, and that, that uh, people, something, things were so terrible and, and, and horrible, but, but a lot of it was hidden by uh, uh, people being, uh, having to sign NDAs and stuff. And with that, we can actually start the book. So Costa Rica, it's a place in North America. It's tropical. And uh, with that, brings American tourists. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. So um, uh, the we have to do a lot of setup before we actually get to the meat of the, the story itself. So we're not going to jump into Grant. We're not going to jump into Ellie Sattler, into John Hammond, into Ian Malcolm, any of that. First, we gotta be like, we gotta we gotta build the tension. We gotta s establish the, the the thrills. We have to really have that slow burn start to burn a little bit. And so it's this it's this village in Costa Rica. I forgot what it's called. It's called um, something on uh, Anosco. Uh, something Anosco, I think. Yeah, the, the I, I can I can try to look and find it real quick, but but yeah, the, the, the it's not like a, a major location it's just kind of it's just kind of there uh at there to set the scene at the beginning it um for yeah. for people who have only seen the movie this is going to be our our scene equivalent of the first i don't remember if it's actually the first scene in the movie or not it's been a long time since i've seen the movie but um the scene where uh they're transferring the velociraptor and that dude start the one of the workers starts being taken into the to, into the container with the velociraptor and um muldoon is, is trying to hold the dude, and he's like, shoot her, shoot her. That scene from the movie, this is like our equivalent in the book. Not quite as, as tense and, and thrilling and action-packed, but it's it follows this this woman who uh, did her residency. She's from she's from the States, and she came down to Costa Rica to do her, like, I, I guess doctor's equivalent of missionary work. And so she's in this little fishing village, and a helicopter comes in with the InGen logo on it, and there's this kid who, had, as they put it, was in a construction accident where one of the machinery, he fell and one of the machinery rolled over him. Um, yeah, this, uh, the, the guy, he is described as having been in a, in a uh, backhoe accident um, by, by Ed Regis. And she's looking at him, and she's like, ooh, he looks like he's been mauled by an animal. And she's like, I've seen plenty of cases of, maul of maulings, and this looks like a mauling. There's no... There's no um, telltale signs of a, of a construction accident like the, the wound being contaminated with dirt or anything like that. And there's this weird sticky foamy thing that kind of looks like saliva that's just kind of stuck to his wounds. And then Jen, Ed Regis just like, no, 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 construction accident, construction accident. That's all it was. And then the kid, grab, he like sits up and he grabs her and he says, Losa Raptor, 
which if you're in the know, you know he's trying to say Velociraptor, but you know these people aren't. So she's like, "What's Losaraptor? That sounds like Spanish." And the chick, uh, the woman, the 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 midwife or whatever, because there's a pregnant woman there. She's like, "I don't know," or no, no, actually, I'm sorry, it's not her. It's it's her assistant, um, his whose name's Manuel. Uh, he's like, "I don't know. Uh, that's not Spanish." So I don't know. Then the kid dies. Uh, Engine comes and takes him away. And she's like, boy, that was strange. And she looks in a dictionary and she sees that raptor means bird of prey. Da da da. And now we go to our American tourists because American tourists always have to be in these places, always just mucking with things because we are arrogant people. And you have this this family of three: uh, father, mother, little daughter, and the, the mother who is just such a stereotypical. <sighs> I will say this I, is I not know. one of the better the better aspects of the book. Either the depiction of, of Manuel, um, uh, the the assistant, or of the wife here. They they are they are a little bit stereotyped here. She's she's so yeah she's a stereotypical American woman who is more obsessed with her looks and is insecure about them. If you know any depiction of what that kind of person would be this is what it is She's like oh i'm so fat i need to lose weight and then meanwhile this is this is all done through the perspective of the husband he's just like well i always found her beautiful so uh i but i uh, i think she's too thin but i can't say that to her so she wants she wanted to find a an isolated beach where she can just you know do beach things with her family without the the prying eyes of those strangers so they go to cabo blanco and they're all just like, oh, look, it's deserted. Neat. And the little girl, uh, Tina, decides that she wants to go run and play and, you know, do eight-year-old kid things. And she comes across uh, Procompsignathid, or a compi, as uh, you would want to call them by shorthand. And she thinks that it's a weird lizard. It's got three, uh, it's got three spiked toes, three-pointed toes. This is important. And she's like, wow, cool. And she doesn't want to scare it, but doesn't seem scared of her. Long story short, it comes up and it starts biting the shit out of her. And she screams, ah, if you've seen the Lost World, if you've seen the Lost World movie, it's the opening scene to that movie, basically. However, there's no ambiguity. The little girl survived. She's fine. It really, all things considered, was a minor inconvenience. Uh, they take her to the hospital in San Jose, I think. And uh, her arm was swelling it bit her a lot and one of the doctors is like yeah i gave her some uh some steroids it brought the swelling down uh pretty sure it's just uh an allergic reaction to um lizards it pumped a lot of serotonin in her and that caused an allergic reaction it's not uncommon so it's fine you know 14 percent of people whatever um that's something that they meant that's really indicative they there are he throws a lot of numbers and like percentages and that kind of they they go a long way to try to establish um this more or less the scientific credibility of things in the book like they you they have like charts and graphs and stuff they have dna sequencing uh depictions it's it's actually pretty cool some of this stuff yeah and uh which i mean to be fair he ended up being right they couldn't have known for certain but he doesn't she's little girl's fine she's totally fine they her arm swelled for a little bit and then they were like oh shoot and they hit her with steroids and she's fine don't worry people the little girl survived 
So if you want to take that into canon for the Lost World movie, uh, they just did that as a sort of like stinger for the intro. The little girl survived. She's fine. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, can't say the same for someone else at the end of the book, but I'm not going to say anything because we're not there yet. Um, so anyways, uh, they call in a specialist who comes from the States, uh, Dr. Oh, what was his first name? It was, um, it was Gut Gu uh, Gutierrez. Um, it was Martin Gutierrez, Marty Gutierrez. Uh, he comes down and he's just like, oh yeah, it's totally a basilisk lizard. And uh, he sees the picture that Tina drew of it, and he's like, "Oh, this is a really nice basilisk lizard." Although the the tail's too thick, the neck's too long, and there's five there's there's supposed to be five toes. There's only three, and he's like, "Ah, you know, kids. But what what are you gonna do?" Uh, but he he sees the um, he wants to get a sample of it because it's kind of bothering him. Because uh, um, when the girl was discharged, she was talking to the original doctor, whose name I forgot because he's nowhere near as important. And the doctor, because Gutierrez told him that it had to have been a basilisk thing with five toes and whatnot, he asked the little girl again, hey, um, how many toes did it have? And she says three. And he's like, oh, okay. So Gutierrez wants to try and find the lizard himself because he's sitting there thinking it could be a new species because, you know, deforestation. And he finds a howler monkey with uh, a, a green lizard with brown spots, which is what the, the compies look like, in its mouth. He scares it away with his air gun. And he gets a partially eaten compy and sends it to New York for them to check it out. They check it out and they're like, yeah, it's, it's a little odd, but it's totally a basilisk lizard as we understand it. They have the drawing that Tina drew of it. Uh, I guess he got faxed to them as well. And they did some, they ran some tests on it. They discovered that eh, it's not really like super, super lethal. But it does. It, it they find some uh, abnormalities that are because it's a dinosaur. But because it's not something normal, they just chalk it up as something that happened during like, uh, like some contamination happened or something. So they kind of write it off. And it's actually, I'm pretty sure, one of the more important things about the Compy's venom. Uh, yeah, they, but, and that's the thing. Whatever. That's a pretty major thing. Like this, this sort of happens and then rehappens several times in this portion where the. Where people are like handling some sort of scientific, you know, some sort of material or evidence or whatever, and then they'll notice something very aberrant, and they'll be like, "Huh, well, that's kind of weird," and then just kind of gloss over it. And I think that yeah. that's like, again, not necessarily a, a morality tale per se, but I, I think this that's one of the things that uh, Michael Crichton is trying. He has a little bit of an axe to grind there, is that he's like, and you know, they don't check their they people they don't check their uh, not their sources, but there's their samples, and they just they get lazy, and you know that kind of stuff. I think there's a little bit of that there. And this is why Michael Crichton is pro change because if someone like Ian Malcolm would have seen that, he would have gone into a huge tirade that made absolutely zero sense to anybody that isn't insane about how this is all about how the butterfly effect and how there's if the turbulence in the wind of the plane's wings and this is how chaos in the world and nature and you know but you want you want to talk about weather for a minute and how weather it, we can't predict the weather okay and you know uh geez um water when you turn it on in a spigot and it, you know it drips a little bit um yeah and all of this you know and this is why th this is why you're stupid see ian malcolm would have figured out this was a dinosaur immediately he, All of this makes sense, by the way, if you've read the book. Everything I just said. <laughs> <laughs> that even started to become a Jeff Goldblum impersonation as, as it went on. 
which something I find really funny, and this this is a very common trope, but when it's done well, and it was done well in this book, I love it. It's really funny. It's just you have the they have the picture that Tina, the copy of the picture that Tina drew in New York, and they have the sample in the fridge, uh, the remains of the of the uh, the copy in the fridge, and one of the lab assistants just walks up and she's like, "Oh hey, whose kid drew the dinosaur?" Oh yeah. <laughs> It's like, her name's like Alice Levin, I think. And it's yeah. Like, all the doctors are like, oh, it's not a dinosaur, it's a lizard. She's like, no, that's totally a dinosaur. Look at the neck. Look at the tail. It's a dinosaur. It's like, my kids love dinosaurs. And it's, it's, obviously she's right. We know that she's right. But these doctors are all just like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is clearly a lizard. Get out of here. You're an idiot. And she's like, what are you talking about? It's a dinosaur. And then she'll come back into the plot at least one more time here in a little bit but i just i find that really funny that it's 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 that trope of somebody who's disconnected from it walks in and puts that final piece of the puzzle into it and like a in a way that it it seems so obvious in hindsight it's you know like i said it's a common trope and when it's done well it's it can be really entertaining and i this one's just really funny i I love it just some girl walking in being like oh need a dinosaur another thing that happened in that sequence uh there they when they're studying the saliva they also detect an enzyme that marks uh, genetic engineering. But they're like, oh, well, th- that, that's kind of what you're talking about, where they're like, oh, well, this is just a, just a, just contamination somehow rather than... So just, just I, I just want to point out that on two separate occasions, something very, very critical uh, has been missed here um, by, by the scientists, by the, the supposed experts. Yeah, these scientists aren't very cash money. And so with that, we can finally be introduced to our main characters, uh, my favorite characters of all time in the Jurassic Park universe, at least, Alan Grant and Ellie Sadler. Mmm. Mmm. Love both these characters. They're even they're great in the movie, they're great in the book. Uh, Alan rules in the book. Just want to say. Alan rocks. Uh, been my favorite character since I was a little kid. Anyways, uh, so it was it was a very very um, validating feeling the first time when I when I listened to the audiobook. Uh, I I can't go into it. I really I so badly want to talk about the climax of this novel, but I can't yet because we're not there. Um, this is the problem of having of of doing a book you've already read. You're just like oh I want to talk about this, but we're like we're 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 barely a hundred pages into this book and it's four hundred pages long. Um, yeah, Alan is such a great character. I love him. Uh, so this is we, we now go to Alan and Ellie uh, in the in the were, were they in Utah or Montana? It was in Montana. Okay, I remember they talked about Salt Lake City. Um, so they're in Montana. They're doing a dig, and they get visited by um, someone from the EPA who is investigating John Hammond and InGen. Because he's been making a lot of purchases, he's been buying up a bunch of amber, which is weird because amber is pretty common. You can you can synthesize it; it's not really worth anything. So it's like that's kind of weird that he's just buying up a bunch of amber mines. He bought the island in off of the coast of Costa Rica. Uh, he got a bunch of these really really high tech computers that I think I think they said they cost like half a million a piece, and he bought like twenty four of them. Yeah. So the EPA is concerned that he's doing something that, like, not necessarily is illegal, 
but is skirting the line and could possibly become illegal. So the EPA comes to talk to Alan, asking him because Alan is being funded by one, one of his one of his uh, uh, donors is John Hammond, because paleontology exists purely on the charity of rich people, I guess. So he's asking Alan what he knows about John Hammond, which is not much other than he's a rich old guy who loves dinosaurs. And he doesn't really know much about InGen, but he's asking questions about InGen and his involvement. If he ever talked to um, uh, his, Hammond's lawyer, Gennaro, which he had once, and it's it doesn't really it doesn't really go anywhere because Alan doesn't know anything. This purely exists to set the readers up. This is this is all information that's supposed to be port, uh, given to the readers, and it's done in a way that. It's, I don't find it really intrusive because, you know, it's, it's someone asking Alan questions that they think he might have connection to because his name is on things, but he doesn't know. So it, 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 it's a nat it, it felt natural. It was, a, it was a great way to fill the readers in on InGen, on John Hammond, and the kind of weird things that are happening. It's, it gives us some nice foreshadowing, too. It, it also kind of introduces Ian Malcolm and, uh, and a, a yet unnamed systems analyst. Yeah, who may or may not be played by Wayne Knight, which um, really quickly I'm, I'm I'm jumping ahead just ever so slightly. Um, is it just because of, of how Wayne Knight said it in the film, or is his name Dodson in the film and Dodgson in the book? Like, is his name Dodgson in the movie, but Wayne Knight just calls him Dodson? Um, that is a good I, question. Because his name is Dodgson in the in the in the book. So, which he says it pretty quickly, you know, he's like, Dodson, we got Dodson over here, which is one of, I, I love that scene, it's so funny. Um, you see, nobody cares. <laughs> he's always trying to look all inconspicuous, and Nedry's just like, ah, oh, it's fine, man. Like, that's, that's a great scene, I love it. Wayne Knight is such an underrated actor. Yeah, he's, he's great. Uh, but that, that's not really relevant to anything, I've jumped, I've jumped ahead like I tend to do. Um... So the EPA guy leaves, Hammond calls uh, Alan, and he's like, hey, have you seen, have you been visited by anyone? And Alan's like, as a matter of fact, yes, I have. And Hammond's like, oh, these EPA guys, these, this, these bureaucratic fools trying to stop me from my vision. This is my dream, and I am a visionary. It, you know, just basically that, that just not quite megalomania, but there's a lot of arrogance to John Hammond. John Hammond, you will come to see as we go through this novel, John Hammond is not the person you know him to be if you've only seen the movie. Steven Spielberg PG'd and Disney'd the hell out of John Hammond for the movie. And it works for the movie. It works really well for the movie, and I'm 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 glad he did it that way in the movie, because book John Hammond would not have translated as well to the movie that Spielberg made. So I'm glad Steven Spielberg did that. I'm just gonna say right now though, John Hammond is not the John Hammond you know if you wrote, if you watched the movie first. Just, yeah, I think just that's, saying that's that now. Say. I love both for different reasons. <laughs> they are completely different characters. Um. Anyways, so Hammond calls Alan, and he's just like, "Oh, so you got to come to my island for the weekend. You gotta. I need you to come and check some things out." And Grant's like, "What are you talking about? We gotta dig." And he's just like, "Nah, you gotta come." And he's like, "No, we can't. We gotta work." And Hammond's like, "Well, what if I pay you and Ellie, ostensibly sixty thousand dollars each, to to come to the island and?" Alan's like, yeah, okay, that works for me. 
So now we've established Ellen and El Ellen. That that's that's their that's their that's their shipping name. We're gonna call them Ellen. <laughs> uh, Ellen and Ellie. Uh, this is this is establishing them coming to the island. It sounds like I'm going through this really quickly because I kind of am. But to be fair, the things I'm not going into detail on are details about Alan and his fa fascination with paleontology, and the details of Alan's work in paleontology, his history in it, the things that he's done, his reputation in the field. It's great stuff. It's great character writing. It really s sets up his character. But I don't really think it's important to go into personally. I don't know. Do you do you agree? Uh, you you're you're. I, I agree. There is one thing, though, that I would, do want to hit before we could go. Just before Mines. he gets on, on the phone uh, wh where with uh, Hammond whining about the e EPA, uh, the, he gets a phone call and a fax from uh, from the, the Levin lady in New York with, yes. the, ev oh, with the evidence of this I was supposed to bring morning. her back in. Yeah. But they, they, they have, yeah, the, he gets a phone call and then a fax from the woman from New York with the evidence of the dinosaur because that... The, the the most of the scientists there they were kind of like oh well we we better wait for you know that I forget what the his name was there's but there's some department chair there that they were gonna wait and show uh, like Doctor Simpson okay yeah that's right Doctor Simpson they were gonna show him all the stuff but I think she just kind of like it kind of stuck with her and she so she decided to reach out to um, to Doctor Grant and at first Doctor Grant he's he is he's polite he's cordial. But it's pretty clear that he's ready to blow her off as a crank. Which, to be fair, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, dinosaurs. Someone telling you that they may have found a dinosaur would be pretty laughable. But when he receives the X-ray, um, he is astonished because I, I don't know if this is true or not. But according to the book, X-rays are difficult to fake. So when he's look, what he's looking at in the the X-ray of the the small dinosaur, is is you know in fact a dinosaur, and he's he's pretty taken aback by that. Um, he's trying, but he's still trying to rationalize it somewhat by saying like, well, you know, they discovered the Colcanth after like sixty-eight million years after it was supposed to be uh, extinct, right? So this can happen, but also you know he he's that's kind of undercut by the fact that he knows that the dinosaur uh disappeared about 220 million years ago so like it, it's it's kind of he has a kind of a dual consciousness in that moment so he's like he doesn't he his his logical mind tells him like no this is not true i cannot believe it and yet the evidence is staring him in the face of of like this of of the possible reemergence of a dinosaur um and i think that that's partly why he does end up going um not uh, the money too the money certainly did encourage him because he was saying to the epa guy that that uh the fifty thousand dollars that he'd gotten from hammond before was able to fund two summers it, worth of digs uh so he only got uh he only got twelve thousand from from hammond because it was supposed to be because it was when he was asking him about the 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 diet Gennaro was talking to him about the dietary habits of the the dinosaurs that they're the the dillipods or whatever and uh it became so tedious for Hammond that he he just stopped doing it and they made a deal to give him 12,000 instead of the agree upon 50. Oh yeah, and cuz cuz uh he was getting calls in the middle of the night by Gennaro being like what 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 did the dinosaurs eat? What they, tell me what they eat right now, you know. Cuz probably there are dinosaurs that were <laughs> probably alive Did they use forks there. or spoons i need to know grant i need to know 
Dinosaurs used chopsticks. Forks and spoons hadn't been invented yet when the dinosaurs were around. <laughs> the uh, everybody knows that. Um, oh, but geez. yeah, that, that's that's just the that's just the the, the little bit that I I want to uh, I just wanted to hit there. Uh, you you can continue, but I just I thought that that was something that we should we should probably mention as well. Absolutely, it was. I, I even said earlier, oh yeah, she's gonna come back. Uh, good old Alice Levin, but uh, I, I skimmed right past it because I forgot. So thank you for catching that. Uh, so they they go the the next the next day they go meet uh, they meet Hammond and Gennaro on an airstrip away from the dig, and they have to take us. They they're gonna fly also, from. Uh, I just want to just hit one one other thing real quick. Uh, Gennaro is is uh, is uh, mentioned in this moment, or he has like a little bit. Like just before this, where he's like, he's he's kind of depicted as like a real, like sleazy lawyer guy. You know, he's like, the his wife is like, oh, why you, you can't leave? It's it's our son's birthday, and he's like, ah, oh, he'll have plenty of birthdays. I'm a high powered lawyer. I can do what I need to do. His daughter. You know? Oh, oh, it's it's our daughter's birthday. You can't go. Oh, I'm a high powered lawyer. I can do whatever I need to do. I'm. I'm a Silicon Valley lawyer, and I'm really good at my job, and I'm a workaholic. You know that kind of that whole kind of affectation. Yeah. Um, so, so some of these characters are are kind of like I don't want to say stereotypes, but they are certainly archetypes. Although some of them definitely are stereotypes, like the like the mom from before. Yeah, we do also get before before meeting them and them starting to to, to fly to to the island. Um, we do get a, a chapter surrounding. Um, Gennaro with his uh, lawyer firm and they're talking about Hammond and how he's become a bit of a liability and all of this has become a bit of a liability and the reason why Gennaro is going to the island with them this weekend is because uh, the, the, the law firm is sending him there to basically see is this investment still worth it and despite all the money that they've put into it if he thinks that it is become too risky he's gonna shut the whole thing down he has to because i guess i guess they have the power to do this uh they're gonna shut the entire island down they're gonna they're gonna ruin hammond so that's why Gennaro is going Gennaro is going is he's going to um with for his firm to basically they're expecting him to go and put the final nail in the coffin for this and he is i i feel like he's not really for or against it he's just He's 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 thinking about the money. He wants to do whatever I think is is more financially good for him. So, which again kind of falls into the theme of the broader theme of the uh, the that uh, Mikey Kreitz is trying to lay down here is like the idea of the financial profit motive overriding all other considerations. Yeah, well, Gennaro's a lawyer, so it's expected. He's not even human. He, he does have a certain, um, you know, like, like this. This was the '90s. They were they were making all kinds of lawyer jokes in the time. Yeah. So they leave. Uh, they 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 have to make a pit stop in Dallas to refuel and to pick up. Mm, Ian Malcolm. Oh God. What can you say about Ian Malcolm other than he is the most interesting and entertaining character in the book and the movie? If you've been on the internet at all in the last ten years, you're you've probably seen a multitude of uh, of Jeff Goldblum memes, um, which 
you know, those, those are all in good fun. He's a great actor, and he seems like a really great person from everything I've heard or seen. Um, but yeah, uh, his his performance in the film is is great. It's it's really good. He really embodies the character. His his terrible curly mullet is just on point. Uh, you know, there's there you it, one of the the bigger memes is you know sexy Goldblum as he's laying there with his his wounded probably broken leg on the table with his shirt open and his beautiful chest peeking through. I I need to step away for a minute, Daniel. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, I've I've calmed down now. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, Ian Malcolm in the book is just as fun, even more eccentric. And just full of bullshit, and I love it. And there's like, it it, it is it is chaotically measured bullshit, and I it's so much fun to read this man talk because he is just so ridiculous. He wears either black or gray completely either all either all black or all gray i is that is that a reference to um what's his name einstein who only wore like five he had like five identical outfits that he would just wear interchangeably didn't he say something something to that effect um i don't think malcolm did but I, i've never heard that about einstein but i wouldn't be surprised if that's if that's a, if that's a thing I think I think that was that was kind of a, 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 an allusion to that when he was talking about his wardrobe. Yeah, if I can actually jump back real quick because I just I just remembered something that I I wanted to bring up because I just I love this this was really funny. Um, Gennaro calls Grant after Grant gets off the phone with Hammond uh, about coming to the park, and Gennaro calls Grant uh, a little while later, uh, saying basically, "Hey, Grant, uh, I don't know if you remember me." Uh, forward to seeing you tomorrow i hear that uh dr sattler's coming too i can't wait to meet him oh yeah and i i got a, a really great chuckle out of that it's just a, a very little it's at the very end of a chapter it's a very subtle blink and you miss kind of thing if you're not really if you're just kind of like reading it without paying attention just a great little setup for a joke that gets paid off when they get to the tarmac and they meet Gennaro Gennaro in person and he sees ellie when hammond introduces them to Gennaro, and he's he's like my god you're a woman and uh <laughs> ellie's response is something along the lines of uh it, it, it happens sometimes doesn't it you know so, so i can't remember the exact line and I, I might it might be worth it to grab my book and pull it up because it, it's such a funny response yeah dr sattler is really really good in this book she's she might be my favorite i, I don't know but but i mean it's hard to go wrong with any of these characters a lot of them are really they're really cool yeah if you say either of the kids are your favorite character, I don't think we can be friends, though. Because, boy, um, I forgot the girl's name. I know that the ki the boy's name is Tim. I forgot the girl's name. It's not important. They only they, 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 they are introduced in the last chapter that we read for this section. So if they don't matter, I'm not going to talk about them. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was funny. Um, just a nice little bit with um, the whole... <laughs> of course, it has to be a man. Wait a minute, it's a woman? Uh, you know, just that, that nice subversion of Gennaro's expectations. Uh, take notes, Ryan Johnson. Uh, ah, that, that's funny, because Laura Dern 
played Ellie Sat. That was uh, that was a really funny joke that I unintentionally because Laura Dern played Ellie Sattler in Jurassic Park, and she played Holdo in The Last Jedi, which was directed by Ryan Johnson, which subverted your expectations. Look at that. I'm very smart. Anyways, so they're flying You're basically Ian Malcolm here with your, with your literary chaos theory. Yes, I am. Uh, so they're flying from Dallas now to go to, Han- to, to Costa Rica. To maybe San Jose, I think, is where they're, they're stopping. <laughs> and uh, Ellie asks uh, Ian why he wears all black. She's like, isn't that the worst thing to wear in this kind of weather and he's like you have beautiful legs and i would love to stare at them but no i wear all black or all gray and it's great for the weather because of radiation and radiation and things and there's radiation going on and that's why it's totally fine and you know what i don't care about fashion i don't care about sports sports are stupid you're stupid if you like sports it's just a bunch of men hitting balls and things i'm not being triggered right now by this as a football fan whatever sports are dumb he he definitely went Reddit there. He 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 definitely said, "Oh, I didn't know there was a sports ball." You know. <laughs> yeah, it's like I I don't I don't follow this primal, brutish thing called sports that you plebeians like to stare at and a, you pay your money to applaud at them big men hitting each other. It's like like you know just turning his nose up, smelling his own farts in his Prius. I'm sorry. No, it, it, in, in this day and age, it would be his Tesla. I'm sorry. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm an old man now. They're not Priuses anymore. Um. Anyways, and he's just like, I, I I care even less about fashion than I do sports. And if I if I happen to put on my gray socks with my black trousers, I won't be mismatched. So it's it's this really just kind of like pretentious snobbery and it's it's great and ellie's just staring at him flabbergasted and i I just i love that at the start of it he throws in the line just the just he just sneaks in at the very start there that the 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 flirting the you have amazing legs i'd like to get to know them uh fashion stupid and sports are dumb yeah that the the, here's here's our uh sad boys book club tip that is actually that is how you definitely um impress women that you want to flirt with is you you first you give them a very uh direct um, a very suggestive compliment, and then you say that the thing they were talking about is dumb. That is, that yeah. is, uh, that it, it's it's basically foolproof. Yeah, if you want to make sure that every woman you ever encounter falls in love with you, the first thing you do is objectify a piece of their body in a lewd manner, and then turn your nose up and act in a way that you imagine they would absolutely hate, and you will be rolling in the ladies. Uh, another thing that I just want to hit on on the flight here is that we kind of uh, have Hammond's Hamarsha kind of come out here, where he talks about. Um, let's see if I can find it. Oh, he's talking about his, the maximizing profits. So he's like, "Well, we but so okay. Let me see if I can find it." Uh, he so he, basically he talks about that he's he's there's not a lot of people that are working at the park, and that's the point. Is he's like, "Well, I mean, if we can get rid of the people working there, then." you know, then we don't have to pay them and we can have more profits. And as we know, both in, uh, the, the as the story goes along and in, uh, our world today, that is the uh, cause of, of many a problem. And I think yeah. that's kind of his, his fatal, maybe his fatal flaw there. Uh, one, one, I, I would say maybe if, if John Hammond had a catchphrase in the movie, it would be spared no expense. He says it like eight times in the first half hour. Sped no expense. And 
I feel like if John Hammond had a catchphrase in the book, it would be spared every expense. Like I said, these are two completely different characters. Which I, I would say both a composite is is the way that you would uh, see that manifest in the real world. The guy who is very adamant usually being usually saying oh we did all this and we we did everything right and you know it's it's great and in the back end with with his buddies or in the in the uh the the big the meetings being like oh look how much money we saved by by cutting these these uh labor costs and safety you know all the cutting the safety costs isn't this great look how much more money we make you know that kind of thing yeah which there, there's a little bit that's done earlier too when uh, Gennaro is on a on a plane with um, Hammond and they're talking, where it makes a comment on how Hammond is a very short old man, and when he's sitting in his chair, uh, his feet don't touch the ground, and as he talks, he likes to swing his legs like a child, and I feel like comparing Hammond in any facet to a child is a very very apt comparison. John Hammond is a big little baby. I think I think that would be an interesting way. We should we should trace that characterization through the novel. Yeah. Uh, so, they. Um, I, I want to go a little deeper into John Hammond, uh, but I want to do that in a little bit. I want to to kind of uh, get get kind of this little bit wrapped up because we are we are actually almost done with what we've covered. The, in terms of actual plot, I feel like I've said this a lot. Not a lot really happened because this is mostly just establishing the characters, establishing the plot. And really getting the, the 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 book kind of started, so we'll believe me, a lot happens. This book has so much going on, and it's all amazing. Uh, so they they fly to San Jose, they get in the helicopter, and they have to fly to uh, Isla Nublar, which is uh, about a hundred miles off the coast of Costa Rica. And they take the helicopter, and it. Uh, the island's super foggy because of it it being um, an upthrust from a volcano, so it, it kind of I guess creates this this big old fog. It's like two thousand feet off the sea level, and uh, it's a bit of a of a of a risky landing because it being covered in fog. There's not a lot of visibility. There's a tree canopy all over the place. They have to navigate through that to get down to the landing pad, and something Hammond says is he's like, yeah, you got to do it fast because of the wind shear and uh, yep. Yeah, well, we're safe, which makes me think that uh, there have been some accidents involved with landing helicopters, and maybe uh, something could have easily gone wrong, and all of our characters would have died in the first quarter of the book, but uh, <laughs> they didn't. Spared no expense. <laughs> Hammond sucks. I hate him. I, I, I love hating him. John Hammond is a character that I love to hate in the book. You know, in the movie, one of the most iconic scenes and uh, one of the best scenes in the movie, especially accompanied with John Williams' score and the, um, at the time, phenomenal uh, CG, and I think it still holds up decently well, all things considered, for a 30-year-old movie, um, the big reveal for the dinosaurs in, in the movie is, is a legendary scene. In the book, it's a little less so, but it's fine because it's not supposed to be. Uh, well, the, they land the thing is, they, they, it's, it's, it's like a... In the in the in the movie, it's they hit you with the the John Williams and da, 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 and you're all you're all hyped up. But this they they kind of do it in such an understated way that it's almost like 
it kind of it serves a purpose to show like how the mundanity of the dinosaurs in on the island like they they are already there this is just like you know what i mean they're 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 just there like it's it's not it's not a big deal anymore yeah and also with the movie it it doesn't ever explicitly come out and tell you that it's an island resort with dinosaurs until you see the dinosaurs in the film whereas in the book at this point we've known for a while that it's dinosaurs in the in the meeting that Gennaro has with the other lawyers um they they talk about they they kind of skirt around it without saying it completely but um something i forgot to mention too um was we 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 hinted at it but we never went into to Dodgson and Nedry but there's a chapter with Dodgson who's part of Biosyn which is a rival uh, genetic tech uh, corporation. Um, Dodgson, in the meeting that he has with all of the the stockholders or whatever the boards, whatever they are, he straight up says, "John Hammond has found a way to genetically clone dinosaurs." We're told in the book that there are dinosaurs on this island long before Grant makes it. Not long before, like twenty pages before Grant makes it onto the island, and we see our second dinosaur because the compies are in like the first chapter of the book. Um, so in the book, the fact that they land on the, 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 the heli- the heliport, they get out of the helicopter and Grant just sees a brontosaurus out in the distance and him and Ellie are like, Holy shit. What? Whoa. And you just see the brontosaurus out in the distance. And that's their introduction to the dinosaurs because as readers, we've long since been introduced to the dinosaurs basically since chapter one, more or less kind of, but if not, then even further back with, um, from the, them getting on the Island with, with Dodgson, with the, the Biosyn people. So it's not as big of a thing, which is why it's such an understated moment in the book compared to in the film where it's only been building up to this moment. You know, you, you know what it's going to be as a viewer, unless somehow you have been living under a rock for 30 years and somebody puts this movie on that you've never heard of and you're watching it and you're like, I don't understand what's going on. I'm not paying attention. And then you see the dinosaurs and you're like, Whoa, like that's not going to happen, but that's exactly the too. Yeah. But all the same, the movie is pretending that you don't know as it's building that moment up. And it's it's that's why that moment in the movie hits so well is because the entire film up to that second has been building up to the first dinosaur interaction. And once again, a company with the John Williams score. That's why that scene is so legendary. That's why it's one of the best scenes in the film. And that's why it is what it is. But. And I, I feel like we are going to do a lot of comparisons between the movie and the book because we've watched we've watched the movie many times, at least I have, and we've both read the book. And as someone, I think I can safely say, as two people who love both forms of the of, of Jurassic Park, the comparisons are going to have to be made just because that's just the nature of it. Um, it is really important to state that both versions of the dinosaur reveal on the island are very successful for two completely different reasons just like john hammond as a character is completely successful in the film and in the movie for two completely different reasons it's all about understanding the tone of the scene and the build to the scene and the medium and they quite don't... frankly yeah yeah so it's it's really important to, to establish that that they can be completely different and still hold a similar rather they don't have to have a similar impact and still matter 
within the context of their medium. And that is what makes that's that is what separates a great adaptation from any other type of adaptation, even a good adaptation or a bad adaptation. That's what separates those from a great adaptation. And Jurassic Park is a great adaptation, I I should say. I would agree. See, Anyways, uh, uh, to, to, to wrap the plot up, because there's really not much more to talk about um, in terms of the actual plot itself. Um, they make it to the island, they see the dinosaurs. Uh, Hammond's like, yep, you know, island, it's cool, it's big, they got... It's a, it's a really big island. It's like 22 square miles. It's like uh, from the for the furthest point point to point, it's like 8 miles long. And uh, there's like some signs immediately that Grant notices of things not being uh, necessarily not not really suspicious, but things being different because Hammond sent them blueprints after they agreed to go and uh, Grant goes to his room and there's steel bars on the on the ceiling skylight that kind of ruins the uh what it was supposed to what he imagines it was supposed to be as a skylight to like see the stars and whatnot yes and and he also notes that it see it looks kind of almost like crudely like haphazardly done not well haphazardly may be the wrong word but like it well a little bit but it just it feels like it it was just kind of having it was just kind of thrown on there kind of implying that maybe there is a reason it needs to be put on there you know yeah and it's it wasn't in the blueprints that him and Ellie notice, and they also notice that the fence was not in the blueprints either. And there are fences all around the island, and they are like inch thick steel. It's it doesn't really mesh, and it's like I said, it wasn't on the blueprints, and it gives the sense that this is a fortress, not a resort. And it's it's all of this is done to keep things in, and this is when the 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 last kind of conversation we have in this in this section is them all gathered in the uh, the resort just kind of having a conversation get before the tour and uh, Malcolm saying that uh, well the, the point of it is Gennaro is like this is why you're here I need to see, I need to, to know I need you guys to basically tell me whether or not this park is safe or not and this is kind of what we're looking at uh, and he shows the graph of infant mortality rates uh, in the last six months and how there have been spikes and drops and the sightings of the compies that have happened which something I should mention also we kind of skimmed past there was a chapter where the, the midwife from the, the opening chapter with the, 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 the American doctor uh, there was a woman that was pregnant that was about to give birth and uh, the compies ate the baby's face which is a, um, a brutal thing and uh, the baby did not survive, by the way. Uh, so this kind of leads into that, the, the, the graph with the infant mortality rates and the compies have been killing babies. And Malcolm is simultaneously right and wrong because he's like, there's two things. Uh, first off, dinosaurs have gotten off the island. And Hammond's like, no, they haven't. And he does what he's done multiple times now and stamps his feet like a child, throws his little tantrum fit and leaves the room uh, because Hammond is a child. And, uh, uh, Gennaro's like, how could you know that? And he's like, chaos theory, that's why. And then he's like, two, the dinosaurs that, the dinosaur, one, dinosaurs have have escaped the island, uh, because reasons, because nature, because science, because chaos theory, I'm not going to give you a real answer, because why would I? And two, 
dinosaurs have not caused the spike in infant mortality rate because it's probably just the flu. And it's like, you know, like I said, Ian is somehow both right and wrong. Because <laughs> the, the, the compies have caused these babies' deaths, which, you know, they escaped. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I might be jumping ahead here. I'm pretty sure how, they, how it gets told is they, they hopped on a boat or something. And that's how the compies got off the island. Yeah. That hasn't been said yet, but I'm pretty sure that gets said later. He's he's trying to, I guess, explain it, and Gennaro's just kind of... I think his eyes probably glazed over, and he's like, What's that? I hear a helicopter. Um, I should go see to that. And <laughs> uh, they go they go follow him, and Gennaro is having an argument with Hammond. Uh, he's like, They shouldn't be here. Why would you invite them? This is ridiculous. And you need to send them back. And Hammond's like, Nope, there's the helicopter leaving. The helicopter leaves. And... What is it but Hammond's grandkids, 11-year-old Tim and 8-year-old, I don't remember her name. So, yeah, in the book, the kids' ages are not necessarily flipped. Uh, they're, 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 like, Tim is the older sibling in this, but I'm pretty sure Tim is probably still 11 in the book, or sorry, in the movie, rather, and his sister, whose name I can't remember, and it's bothering me that I can't, but it doesn't matter. She's now his younger sister instead of his older sister, which... I'm going to tell you right now, the scene you're thinking of from the movie still exists in the book, not in the same way, but it does exist in the in the book similarly, and it's even more ridiculous than the movie. I'm just going to be honest with you there. It's more ridiculous. It somehow still happens more or less the same way, a little different, but yes, it still happens exactly the way you're thinking of, kind of, but imagine an, an eight-year-old doing it instead. I'm, that's all I'm going to say about that until we get there. I'm trying to find. I'm trying to find the kid's name. I. I don't. Uh, I don't have the book on me, so I'm trying to Google, but I'm not finding it. Um, nobody knows her name, sadly. Okay, let me let me look it up again. Here we go. What are the kids' names in Jurassic Park? Lex. Oh, that's it's right. Tim and Lex. That's right. That's right. Okay, so Lex is her name. Uh, Lex is eight years old in this instead of probably either a preteen or an early teen. I don't know. I don't know how old she's supposed to be in the movie. And uh, that's all we've covered. Uh, that's It's about the first quarter of the book. Um, is there anything you wanted to add in terms of the plot we've covered so far, Daniel? Uh, I think we hit everything. We hit the Biosyn thing, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, that, that, I, I thought so. Or, but I just... Uh, not not completely. Um, I, I just kind of mentioned that they talked about dinosaurs. Um, do you want to talk about the biosyn thing and and the Dennis Nedry scene? Uh, sure. Here, let me. I should say my... they picked up Nedry in San Jose as well. Nedry is with them at this point. Yeah. Uh, let me look. So, so basically, there's a scene where Biosyn, ostensibly the more evil uh, biotech company, uh, italicizing and underlining more here. Uh, they, they basically they call an emergency board meeting. Where they, they basically they, they look at the, essentially the same evidence that the EPA is looking at, and they surmise um, that InGen is building a dinosaur theme park with real dinosaurs. Which um, they're 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 pretty much like, oh no, that that'll that'll basically, you know, take us out of business for uh, some reason. I don't know. They but the point is they won't they, be they, able to catch up. Basically, and they're they're worried that Engine will patent it so that they won't be able to essentially just copy paste it and call it their own. Yeah, that basically they they feel like they're they're they yeah they're they're pretty much it's an existential threat. So they hatch a plan to uh, 
basically just to do some corporate espionage and or just good old-fashioned stealing. So they, they, they hire an agent who is yet unnamed, but we will we will find later. But they, they uh, to, essentially that he's sent with like a fake um, shaving cream can and he, he's, he's supposed to recover, was it fif- the 15 different embryos? Because like, there's like 15 yeah. different kinds of dinosaurs um, in Jurassic Park. And he's supposed to smuggle the uh, the embryos to a to an exfiltration point on the a dock on the eastern uh, uh, shore of the island. Um, that's 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 really all that I, I wanted to emphasize is just so that like while all this is happening, we see like the beginnings of of, uh, of this of this uh, nefarious plot that is in, in face of our um, our uh, the 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 main plot, which is about an affront to. Uh, to nature and good sense. Um, so the the last thing that I I, I want to talk about at least um, is is John Hammond the character in the book and how how he has been so far because I've been skirting around it and I've been throwing little tidbits here and there. But so John Hammond sucks in the book. He's a terrible person. All he cares about is I I, I feel like he he does truly love dinosaurs, uh, but he only sees them as a conduit for making more money. I think that he does appreciate the science of it and the idea of bringing these extinct species back to, to life because of his love for dinosaurs, but it really does feel like it comes back, always comes back to, but the money. Mm-hmm. He's, he's very selfish, he's very egotistical, he's very maniacal, and he just hand waves the deaths that he, he mentions. Um, he tells Gennaro at some point that there have been three deaths uh, and a bunch of um, um, accidents here and there that weren't as bad, but he plays it off like uh, the 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 most recent death. Oh, it was a it was a construction accident. It was a backhoe accident. It wasn't definitely wasn't a mauling by a velociraptor. So he, you know, as I said before, he's very much a spared every expense kind of person instead of his movie counterpart, which was spared no expense. Uh, there it seems to be a lot of corners being cut. Uh, he, as you mentioned earlier, how he his whole idea is we're using computers because they're cheaper. We don't need people. Uh, they're cheaper long term because we can use those instead of people. We don't have to pay the people. We're gonna run this park as like a, a minimum uh, amount of people. We'll just have the computers doing most of the work, and it's it's he's only thinking about it selfishly he's not doing this for the betterment of humanity he's not doing this as a as looking at a microcosm of the past in a looking at it as a historical or educational context he is very much a selfish greedy old man who wants to use one of his interests and even then i feel like you can maybe make the argument that he doesn't love dinosaurs he loves what he can get out of genetically creating dinosaurs because they do tell the story um of how when he was trying to charm investors into funding engine because john hammond is engine uh how he would do it how he would charm investors is he would have this cage this tiny cage that he brought out and it would have a a tiny elephant in it an actual real live elephant that was about a foot long and his um genetic specialist scientist 
uh, whose name I've also forgotten, uh, created it. And it seems like it was a fluke because he can't recreate that little elephant. And it's... Which him... you absolutely should not. That that was... I felt terrible even thinking about that poor creature. Like how... Yeah, how... I how miserable it must have miserable in existence it must have lived yeah and the fact that he would just parade it around from people just to try and get some money out of them so he can create his his little startup uh biotech company and uh it, it also mentions how um it wasn't like an elephant in terms of its its um its nature and its kind of um attitude uh, there's a word for this that i i i slipped my mind disposition uh, disposition works um it's more like a rat or a rodent so it's it's more vicious it likes it'll like bite at people and it's just it's just a just a mean mean creature and hammond is the kind of person who if he sees that the elephant like sneezes or catches a cold or something which is a funny thing to think about for an elephant that's a foot long sneezing uh his first thought is I need you to make another one so that I can replace this one if something happens and it dies not I need to I need to make sure that this elephant is you know healthy and whatever it's I need to have a backup one just in case he's looking at it as a product not as an actual creature and I think that's how he's looking at the dinosaurs as well which is why I said I think you can make the argument that he doesn't actually love dinosaurs he just loves what he can get out of them as opposed to in the movie he he has a general love and fascination for dinosaurs um so yeah hammond is a really skeezy character in the book he's a terrible person he's super quick tempered if you question him even a little bit he'll snap at you and stamp his feet and leave the room he he does it multiple times he he hates he absolutely hates ian malcolm because ian malcolm told him from the start because ian knew exactly what he was going to do because he was part of the uh the initial um uh research and whatnot Sorry, I was I was saying he was he I I use the word consultants because that's what that's yeah yeah when he was hiring Dr. Grant that's essentially what they were doing they were they were doing a con- consultation work yeah so Ian was part of the original um, consulting that Hammond did for the park and Ian was like this is gonna fail this is a stupid idea it'll never succeed chaos theory ha um, so Hammond hates Malcolm because Malcolm's just like you're not going to succeed. This is a terrible idea, you know. Nature, don't don't mess with nature. And so, the only reason that Malcolm is there is because Gennaro invited him himself. So Hammond's pissed that Malcolm's there in the first place. Just hates him, hates him, hates him. Gets pissed at him for even opening his mouth. And uh, yeah, so. We'll see a lot more of Hammond's disposition and just really what kind of person he is. Um, even even with his grandkids, uh, what he tells Gennaro is, which this 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 almost almost can be seen as a as a like loving grandpa kind of thing. But I I do think that there is an ulterior motive here under the surface. Is he says their parents are going through a divorce. They deserve to have a fun weekend, and. On the surface, that sounds like uh, a loving grandpa being like, oh, these kids are going through a rough time. Let me take them and show them some fun and whatnot while, to distract them from the hardship that their, their, their parents are probably putting them through in this trying time for them. That sounds nice on the surface, but I'm pretty sure 
what Hammond is actually doing is him being like, see, Grant, Sattler, and Malcolm, see, and Gennaro, it's safe for the, my, my, he's putting his grandkids at risk to prove a point, is yeah. what I think his actual goal is. It's he's, very he's cynical. Be, yeah, it's, it's, if it's safe for my grandkids, it's safe for everybody. I also, and, they also kind of exist as like a, like a, like a semi-focus group too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they're gonna get a um, a very like stripped down, uh, very prototype experience of what the park is supposed to be. But yeah, it's Hammond sucks. Is 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 really the point in the in the book? Hammond absolutely sucks, and he's a great. I I, I will th- I think I will go as far as to say that Hammond is a great villain character for this book because I think in the book he is the villain. Yeah, yeah, I can, I, I definitely agree with that. I think he's, he, he is the villain. Um, he definitely exists, kind of like what I was saying earlier about some, some of these characters. They're not characters so much as they are archetypes. He is like the very, the model of like the, the greedy, uh, money man. Like kind of, you know, all those things Dusty was saying. He was, just, he's just like this very, very quick-tempered, only thinks in terms of short-term stuff you know short-term monetary gain you know just just uh just not a real good guy yeah but yeah uh daniel is there anything else you wanted to talk about uh no i think i think we covered it really well i i I think this was a very successful episode yep so yeah that'll i guess that'll do it for us for the the first episode of jurassic park um as i've said at the start of this you'll probably know where what i'm going to say at the end of the final episode of this uh, but you'll, you'll have an idea of how I'm going to feel in my final thoughts when we finish the book because, you know, I've read this book before. I, I Rather, I, I listened to the audiobook before. Um, so, yeah, uh, th- I love this book. I'm so excited that we're reading it. Um, I'm looking forward to, to reading more of it. Uh, we're, we're, we're covering about a quarter at a time. Uh, according to my copy of the book, we have two different copies. Uh, how, yours is, you said yours is like, what, a 430 pages or something like that? Yeah, mine mine is a lot smaller than yours is. It's like, it's like a, it's it's a hardback, but it is it's the size of like a, a paperback. Yeah, mine is a nice, convenient four hundred pages long. So we're we're breaking it down into about, uh, according to my copy, about one hundred pages each. We're gonna do this in four. Uh, we went up to ninety five, uh, according to my copy. Uh, in this one, we went up to the the chapter we're going to be starting with. The next episode is called uh, the tour, so that's where we've stopped, and uh, we'll probably cover approximately a hundred pages next time, and we're, we'll do that uh, for four weeks. And I'm looking forward to it. As I said, I love this book; it's great. It's uh, it's up there for one of my favorites, and uh, yeah. Yep, I, I'm very, very much looking forward to uh, reading more, and I guess we'll see you next time. Take care.